food can be quite revealing. Um, you know, when Richard Nixon ate a little dollop of cottage cheese every single day for lunch, that's odd, and it tells you about him. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. Alex Prudhomme's new book, Dinner with the President, is a narrative history of American food, politics, and 26 presidents, from George Washington starving at Valley Forge in 1777 to Donald Trump's burger banquets and Joe Biden's performance-enhancing ice cream in 2022. It was so much fun having Alex on the show to talk about how food has been used as a diplomatic tool since the founding of the United States. We also talk about some of the most underrated cooks in the White House. Truth for Grace Coolidge. Grace Coolidge, great stories about her. We also talk about Alex's journalism and how he wrote a famous New Yorker article that would inspire that soup Nazi character on Seinfeld we are all familiar with. We also talk about the book he wrote with his great aunt, Julia Child. You may have heard of her. And the many movies and TV shows inspired by that work. If it isn't clear, Alex Prudhomme is truly a savant. He is he's one of my favorite guests in a long time. And I hope you enjoy this conversation. Alex Prudhomme, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Thanks, Matt. Great to be here. I'm such a fan of your work. I'm, oh. I'm, I'm just, like, happy to see your face. Oh, thanks. Yeah, it's good to be here. I love talking about it after working in solitude for so long. Exactly. I, I think that you've got—we can go in many directions. You, your work has encompassed um, uh, cr- true crime, uh, tech uh, scandal, uh, of course, food, and now presidents and food or politics and food. Let's focus on that first. Sure. Yeah. So this book, Dinner with the President, is really about the politics of food and the food of politics. And it uh, covers 26 of the 46 presidents so far. And I picked them uh, based on the ones that were most interesting culinarily and also kind of had the highest profile. One of the things I discovered was that virtually every president has an interesting food story. So the the hard part about this book was deciding mm-hmm. what to use and what not to use. Mm-hmm. And, uh, sadly, there's quite a bit on the cutting room floor. <laughs> yeah. Do we have Garfield in there? Uh, briefly. Yeah. Uh, briefly because he liked to eat squirrel stew, uh, which oh. I thought was entertaining. Um, yeah. I, I, we could go through like the eighth grade, like name every president. But, but can you literally name every president in order? No. Okay, good. <laughs> My uh, kids can. Your, your kids can. That great, great bar trick, parlor trick. Yeah. Um, I have some quick rapid fire questions just from the jump because, you know, this is an endless well of conversation, not just because of the politics, but just the history. We're, we're all history buffs here, especially uh, many of our listeners. Okay, so hands down, which president ate the best? You'd have to start with Thomas Jefferson in the 19th century. In the 20th century, you'd probably have to say the Kennedys. Uh, and in the 21st century, it would be sort of a tie between uh, the Clintons and the Obamas. Great, great, great point about Jefferson. And just like I want to tap into Jefferson was clearly a foodie. Yeah. He, he went to France. He lived in France. He wears at that time it was the center of culinary thought in the world. Tell me a little bit about Jefferson's um, the way he kind of changed food in the White House. Well, Jefferson was a natural epicure. Uh, and had the advantage of growing up on uh, a slave plantation where he had bountiful food, uh, was well-educated. There were French chefs living in Virginia. And so he came at the presidency with a great wealth of knowledge. And as you mentioned, he was the ambassador to Paris. Uh, He brought with him his slave chef, James Hemings, who he trained at some of the top kitchens in Paris. 
and brought back home uh, to cook this wonderful French food. And, and he's become known as the most Epicurean of all the yeah. presidents, um, partly because uh, he uh, had these wonderful gardens that were tended by his slaves. Um, and also he, uh, he used that food in a different way than most of his peers. He was uh, eating what we now call a vegetable-forward diet, mm. meaning lots of greenery with a little bit of protein. And, of course, he had wonderful wines. Yeah, very Michael Pollan. I mean, I'm feeling like some Pollan vibes. Oh, there. yeah, Pollan would love it. Yeah, Pollan would love Jefferson. Back to Hemings, important figure. I've written this out, like, in a newsletter or something, but and I know Michael Twitty is in lots of scholarship. You know— First celebrity chef in America, James Hemings. It could be argued this. I would say second because actually George Washington's slave chef, Hercules, Hercules. was a real celebrity. Thank you for reminding me that. Great yeah. call on that You know, one. he was a wonderful cook. I mean, he, he, he should have had his own TV show, this guy. Yeah. He was an amazing cook, a real taskmaster. He wanted yeah. everything to be clean, done correctly, uh, delivered perfectly. The plate had to look good. Um, in his off hours, he was allowed to sell scraps and make some money, and he and he bought wonderful clothing, and he would walk through the streets of, of Philadelphia, you know, with a gold-tipped cane and a top hat. Incredible story. Um, and then he didn't like being a slave, imagine that, and uh, escaped on the night of uh, Washington's 65th birthday, right before he retired from the presidency. Mm. Hercules slipped off into the night and was never found. Was never found, so he yeah. lived Great ho- story. hopefully a, a, yeah. a better life. Now, um, back to Hemings, one more question. It seemed at the time, because of his training in France um, and his connection to Jefferson, um, he was probably the uh, not just the most famous chef, but the, the sharpest, the, the greatest thought leader in terms of food in America at that time. Yeah, and what's really interesting is that Jefferson and Hemings were such a team— um, Jefferson had the vision and the palette and the background, and Hemings had the skill yeah. uh, and also his own sort of intuitive artistic sensibility. And so the two of them, along with, uh, you know, British recipes, uh, French technique, um, indigenous American ingredients like venison and turkey and corn, um, and combined into this wonderful fusion cooking that became known as Virginia cookery mm-hmm. or Jeffersonian cookery. And that still informs the American palate today. And so really, uh, that was the beginning of what we now think of as quote unquote American food, which is, a, and it's a, it's a, it's a fusion of global cuisine. Yeah. Uh, and you have to include in there also African spices and herbs and, and his, and, 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 um, James Hemings own sort of soupçon of, uh, inspiration. I mean, it's a really remarkable story. Okay, question. Uh, which president would you say ate the most? I think, you know, Big Bill Taft gets a lot of shade, biggest biggest president, big girth, but maybe not the the president who ate the most. He ate a lot. Yeah. Uh, he had steak three times a day. Uh, and yes. when he wasn't eating steak, <laughs> he was ordering roasted possum, uh, which was a popular dish back then, and people across the country would send him possum. And when he wasn't eating possum or steak, he was eating tons of shellfish. Uh, <laughs> and he was 350 pounds, so he was the biggest, and he ate quite a lot. Yeah. I, uh, a close second, though, was his mentor, Teddy Roosevelt, mm-hmm. uh, who was born a sickly child here in New York. And... Um, overcompensated, you know, through being an adventurous sportsman and military leader and by eating. Yeah. Um, his father had died of a stomach tumor. And I think that seeing his father waste away must have impacted him psychologically. And he just ate and ate. And he acknowledged, he said, I mm-hmm. can't stop myself. And he basically ate himself to death. Really? So there was actually like a, a sad ending to his, his yeah. love. He of- died at age 60, uh, yeah. basically, uh, you know, 
his heart exploded after he ate too much. Yeah. <laughs> hey, man, can't we all got to go out some way? I it, know, but 60 seems so young, and, and it's just sad. <laughs> yeah, it is sad. Do you know what that last meal was? Did you find in your research about I what couldn't. It? I was looking for that. Yeah. I don't have it. I bet it was some red meat, though. <laughs> I'm sure there was some red meat. Okay, question about this politics aside. Was there a president who just hated food? Is there, like, one who just, like, deplored food the most? Uh, I think you'd have to say Woodrow Wilson, uh, who was this tall, thin guy um, who had a nervous stomach oh. and was <laughs> eating all sorts of elixirs and things to try to calm him down. He, and when the when World War One was going badly, every time a, we would uh, have a setback, he would have a nervous fit and he couldn't eat and he had to leave the Paris Peace Conference because <laughs> his stomach was so bad. And uh, and yet he led this kind of racy private life. And um, yeah, the other one uh, occurs to me is Nancy Reagan, who basically subsisted on, you know, uh, diet shakes and pills yeah. uh, and became anorexic. Uh, and it was really sad because sad. you could see it. Um, and, you know, she managed to recover, thankfully. But um, it was interesting because the pressures of the White House impact your diet. Um, we could talk all about your research. And I just highly recommend Dinner with the President. Wonderful book. I'll link to it in the show notes. Let's talk about food diplomacy and, of course, there's politics involved, and I think there's ways to, like, have revisionist history and say, like, this dish inspired uh, this this real um, moment in um, in a peace accord or whatever. But please, Alex, give us an, a real example where food changed policy. Well, there are many examples. Uh, I mean, just to go back, the history is that, you know, breaking bread is a, a traditional way of kind of putting your arms aside, um, having a off-the-record conversation outside of the little normal political realm uh, and really brokering deals. Uh, for the president, it's a way of keeping your friends close and your enemies closer. And so there are numerous ones. I mean, you start with Thomas Jefferson uh, with the famous dinner table bargain that happened mm. um, uh, when the when the nation was only a year old. Uh, this was before he was president. Washington was president, but he, he had uh, uh, Alexander Hamilton and James Madison over to his house here in New York. And they were at war over um, questions about taxation and the U.S. financial system uh, and also where to build a federal city. And uh, Jefferson felt that their battle was going to rip the republic apart. And so he had them over for dinner. Uh, James Hemings cooked. It was a secret dinner. And uh, it was this wonderful meal where they started with this Jeffersonian salad and they moved on to capon stuffed with chestnuts and mm. then a, a braised beef dish. And then the piece de resistance was a cold vanilla ice cream and a warm puff pastry. And it kind of blew their minds and took their minds away from the political battle. Cold um, and warm together yeah. at this period. Yeah. Not easy. No. Not something that no. they No, and not something that people knew about. Right. And so James Hemings had learned yeah. this in Paris and brought James. it back. And, and it was like, it was it was Jefferson's kind of killer app. Uh, <laughs> and of course, he had these fantastic wines. And so yeah. all these wonderful flavors and wines worked on the men. And by the end of the evening, they had actually reached a compromise. Um, which uh, is sung about in the musical Hamilton. It's yeah. the song, The Room Where It Happened, and it's yeah. all about how the sausage gets made in the yeah. back room. Yeah, it's, it's definitely I love one. It. It's my yeah. top three in that, in that wonderful soundtrack. It's in my head now, Room Where It Happened. So good. Um, let me ask you a little bit about um, other examples where food maybe 
caused a riff or caused some kind of friction between world leaders? Is there maybe it's a cultural difference? Maybe it was um, a, a, a taste. I mean, we know about Nixon passing out at a meal, of course, um, on television. So that that was one. That was one, actually George H. W. Bush. Uh, oh, there's who's that in Japan. And there's uh, that one. He uh, right. It turns out he had a stomach flu, but he uh, he passed. He threw up and passed out and fell off his chair. That's right. People thought he might have died, uh, but he didn't. He just had you know, was feeling ill. Uh, Nixon was famous for 1972's visit to China. Right, that's where, what I'm she, where he opened up China to the West and very intentionally used food as a diplomatic tool and understood that because this was the first time TV cameras were recording a state visit, uh, it was crucial that he looked good, even though he hated the press, uh, famously. Yeah. And he practiced using chopsticks for weeks and months. Mm. And it was good that he did because when Americans saw him using chopsticks to pick up a chicken gizzard, they were just yeah. amazed. And Barbara Walters was there saying, oh, my God, the president is eating with chopsticks, you know. <laughs> and and at the end of the day, those visuals were almost more important than the actual oh, diplomacy. Yeah. So that was a good example. Um uh, I'm trying to think of a bad example. Well, there's a kind of a funny example. Uh, mm -hmm. During the big three meetings uh, at Yalta between Stalin, Churchill, and Roosevelt, Stalin was being very aggressive and kind of anti-Churchillian. Mm -hmm. And it was Churchill's birthday, and uh, they had a special dessert, which was this towering ice cream thing that was on top of a candle-lit thing. And it, <laughs> it the, the, the candle melted the base and the whole thing toppled and fell on the head of Pavlov, who was the Russian translator, who was in the middle of translating Stalin's remarks. It just And it was it so shocking. Wow. Yeah. And it just covered this poor guy. I mean, down, it got into his shoes. It was all over the, and the whole place just went silent. <laughs> but it literally broke the ice. Everybody started laughing and they cleaned him up. And at that point, the diplomatic yeah. negotiations turned and it was really interesting. Uh, you, sp you spoke with a lot of former White House chefs, and, and I want to get a little bit into what that role entails. But in general, do you get a sense of their experience working in the White House? Because to my perception, there's many different formats of meal happening in the White House, everything from the large state dinner down to the private residence. What do you learn from these chefs, and who did you speak with? I spoke to a whole bunch of them, um, and in fact, I had one uh, guy named John Mueller uh, cook me a White House meal, which we can talk about. But um, it's a it's a pressure cooker. You're yeah. you're in the most powerful house in the world. Um, there are people from all different constituencies um, coming, and everybody has their own agenda. So it's a high pressure place. It's not a very well paid job compared to working at a fancy restaurant outside. Mm -hmm. um, but these people are highly skilled. Um, they are really dedicated. They love the job. And that proximity to power and sort of the nexus of energy mm. is a, a little bit addictive. And in fact, uh, the chef uh, Walter Scheib kind of talked about that. He cooked for the Clintons and yeah. George W. Bush. Uh, he was a kind of a um, volatile guy himself. And um, he would talk about uh, once the Bushes kind of let him go, it was almost like he was going through a drug withdrawal. I mean, it was addictive to him. You mean uh, when, when he left the White House? When he left the oh, White yeah. House. That, that the power. Being, being, yeah, left out of the, the action really, it like, worked on him. Yeah. Um, and then he was also working with a French pastry chef, Roland Mesnier, mm -hmm. uh, who in his book talks about having uh, 
a bit of a drinking problem. He got himself, uh, he would, it would, there was so much pressure. Yeah. Uh, and it's understandable that you had to relieve and have some fun and sometimes got himself in got trouble it. doing that. But, you know, it's, it's that we're all human. A uh, couple follow-up questions. First, is there a sense, especially in contemporary White Houses, that is there a style of cooking that is uniform um, that goes from administration to administration? Are we talking um, lighter cuisine to keep uh, the president and staff fresh? Um, is there a style? Is there like, is it American food or are we, are we going into like cow soy? I mean, are they making dishes from regional parts of the world? Last question. Are they, are they cooking on the road? Are they going on Air Force One, Marine One and cooking for the staffs there? There is something food-wise going on at the White House virtually every day. I mean, it is not only the center of the nation, it is a functioning home. And so, you know, George W. Bush was famous for dropping by the kitchen and having a ham and cheese sandwich. Hmm. Um, But as you say, there's picnics on the White House lawn, there's state dinners, there's all sorts of, you know, cabinet meetings. Um, And it really depends on the administration. Each administration has its own flavor, its own taste. And um, so, uh, you know... Barack Obama had probably the most global palate of any president, and he would have a cow soy, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he was famous for meeting with uh, Tony Bourdain in Hanoi and having spicy bun cha noodles, yeah. uh, which is something that a, a Donald Trump would never do in a million years. Yeah. Um, and it just depends. And so, uh, but at the end of the day, the chefs tell me it's it's largely a catering job. You know, when you do a state dinner, you're you're serving from 100 to 200 people within an hour and a half. And there's only so much you can do. You don't want to have too many offensive flavors or, you know, sharp garlic or, you know, something that would turn people off. Uh, each of those meals is carefully researched and pre- prepared. Uh, well, they're symbolic and they're, and they're, they're representative of not just the, the guest nation, but also what's happening in American food at the time. Exactly. So that the wine choices may come from Willamette Valley or Napa Valley or upstate New York. Yeah. You know, there might be some cheeses. I mean, there's just like a real, it's a real flex, right, of American gastronomy. It is. It's a great showcase. Yeah. Uh, and there's always a nod to the to the guest country, but there's but it, it's usually a mix. So when Macron comes, mm. they'll serve uh, a... A, a, an American wine made by a French vintner or, you know, aged in French oak barrels. So there's usually a little hint of uh, acknowledgement. Um, when Gorbachev came, uh, the Reagan served him wine from the, the Russian River Valley, uh, which was a nod to the, all the Russians that settled yeah. there. So and incredible wines, too. Very uh, great, 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 wine. great wine producing yeah, region. Yeah. So it's like win-win, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, it is. And it, it seems like the moment the the menu drops, it often is covered in food media, yeah. which is really cool to see that. Yeah. And Julia Child always promoted the White House kitchen and, and urged administrations to treat American food and ingredients the way the French yeah. do, which is to make it a news event every time uh, there's a state dinner and to really elevate the profile of the cooks and the kitchen and and uh, and so I kind of picked that thread up in the book, too. We'll get to Julia Childs. Yeah, of course. Have you had a meal at the White House? Have you had that kind of access? I know you were reporting this during the pandemic, so that must have been obviously impossible. But have you had that honor? And will you get the invite with this book? I mean, come on, Biden, like, step it up. <laughs> <laughs> um I did have a meal. One of the things that inspired this book was in 2016, I was invited to go to the White House and give a talk about fresh water, which I had written about in my book, The Ripple Effect, to mid-level staff. And I I had a friend who worked in the Obama administration who uh, took me to lunch at the Navy Mess, which is probably the world's most unusual cafeteria Hmm. in the base of the White House next to the Situation Room. 
it's decorated like a Navy ship because it's na- staffed by uh, Navy men who used to be on the presidential yachts, mm-hmm. which no longer exist. Um, and um, that was really fun because every table was filled with people I recognized from television <laughs> and the news. Um, and then he gave me a quick tour of the White House, which kind of blew my mind because seeing it in person was kind of an emotional event, which I wasn't expecting. And that was one of the inspirations for this book. Um, I have not been in, able to get to a state dinner, yeah. much to my chagrin, partly because um, I was reporting during the Trump administration. They only had two of them. Yeah, they did. Uh, and they didn't like reporters from New York. And so I wasn't invited. But also then COVID shut everything down. Yeah. Um, and I very much hope that this book will give me entree to a state dinner. I still want to do that. And yeah. there's still more to write. So so much more to write, follow-ups. And I, and I hope uh, you continue on this beat because it's, it's just an endless well. And I absolutely love this book. So, oh, great. Thank you. Um, yeah. Speaking of the Obama administration, we had Justin Smiley on the podcast a few episodes ago. And he ran the restaurant Upland, which is famously an Obama favorite. They dined there several times. And he told us on the episode how when he was cooking for the for Barack and, and Michelle, he had a taster next to him, which is something you think about from movies, but it was actually playing out in real time for him. So with your research, how does that actually work? I know it's quite secretive, but like, is there literally somebody tasting every dish for the president at all times? You know, that's a question I asked uh, my uh, White House chef friends and uh, people like John Mueller uh, said, you know, that never really happens. I mean, um, hmm. I, I don't know. I mean, Justin is, uh, I, I take his word for it. So yeah. maybe occasionally they did. I mean, my favorite food taster story is when U.S. Grant held the first state dinner at the White House for a foreign dignitary. And it wasn't the king of England or the czar of Russia. It was the, the king of the Sandwich Islands, which we now call Hawaii. Yep. King Kalakaua, who was a, a big roly-poly guy who loved to eat. But he showed up at the White House uh, for the state dinner with two stone-faced food testers uh, just to make sure he wasn't poisoned. <laughs> well, yeah, when, you, when you're when you're in that kind of uh, environment and you live on an island, I would imagine there's maybe a little more of a threat to yeah. overthrow your your rule. Exactly. Um, I You know, I think I take Justin's word for it. I believe I do too. they're not going to tell a reporter yeah. um, anything. And yeah. I think he's not a reporter. He was just there. And I think he probably got a little insight. And he, but even when I asked them off the record yeah. about this, they were like, you know, that used to happen. They, like the last one that they remembered that happening yeah. for was Ronald Reagan when he went to a place like he went to Venice. He went to a conference yeah. there and uh, there was a food taster uh, because don't forget, he was shot uh, yeah. by Hinckley. And so he had already had one assassination attempt and they were and Nancy was very worried about his health. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I could see that. Um, I take I take Justin's word for it, but I never yeah. Yeah. was able to confirm that. I'll myself. have to ask him um, more about that. Yeah, okay. me too. <laughs> you mentioned uh, first ladies. Uh, I feel like the first ladies are overlooked. And I think that the first lady plays a, a huge role in food. They're considered um, the host of many of these meals. So can you talk about the historical significance of the first lady when it comes to uh, hosting events at the White House? Yeah, I, I, this is something that I tried to bring out in my book. Uh, I think I agree with you that they're overlooked and they play a really crucial role, not only domestically, but politically often. Some first ladies love the job and it really is a job, even though it's unpaid. Others hate it. Um, But the first one to kind of set the modern standard was Dolly Madison. Uh, James Madison, her husband, was a Virginia planter, uh, conservative guy. He didn't care too much about food or Mm -hmm. entertaining, but she loved it. And she would host these parties called Wednesday night squeezes uh, because you had to squeeze into the room. They were so popular. And if you didn't get invited, it was a real diss. Uh, And it was her way of kind of keeping the kind of 
Wild West town that was Washington back then all together uh, because you'd have these lonely congressmen and yeah. you would entertain them and, food and feed them. Then you have someone um, like um, Eleanor Roosevelt um, who didn't much care for the first lady's job, but she understood its political value. And during the Second World War, she used her uh, bully pulpit to talk about how to eat economically, how to use food stamps, yeah. uh, how to grow a victory garden. And she was very effective. Um, yeah. And so she was able to turn lemons into lemonade, yeah. essentially. And then you have someone like Jackie Kennedy, uh, who really upped the game um, when she hired the French chef René Verdon um, and brought a whole new era of fine dining and actually modeled her entertaining on uh, Louis XIV, the Sun King, uh, who used food as a diplomatic tool. And to to Jackie's uh, credit, I mean, it was really amazing the things she pulled off. And uh, some of those meals are still talked about today. Do you have a favorite first lady or or a first lady that maybe gets less exposure through your research that you think really you connected with, like you felt like they had um, a real love of life and had the role down I like Grace Coolidge. Uh, people don't talk about her too much, but Calvin Coolidge. Cool cow, man. Yeah, silent cow. He didn't yeah. talk much. Yeah, uh, yeah. He was a Vermont farmer. Yeah. Uh, you can go visit his homestead in uh, Plymouth Notch. I'd highly recommend it. It's fantastic. Um, he was a farmer, so he uh, had a chicken coop out back, and his chickens tasted of mint because uh, they were uh, put on top of Teddy Roosevelt's mint patch, mm-hmm. which he grew for his uh, mint juleps. Um, but Grace was this lovely woman. She adopted a raccoon who had been sent to them um, as something to eat, but she liked the raccoon and named her Rebecca, and she <laughs> lived in a tree outside of the White House. Wow. And she was uh, a cook. She would uh, make an apple pie in the White House kitchen, uh, to which Cal would say, oh, you could use that crust to pave the road. Uh, <laughs> and she just put up with him, and she was just a lovely, gracious, warm person. And so she was kind of the the lighter side of that Yankee persona. I love that. I think I called him Cool Cal because I had a teacher in, like, middle school who just loved Coolidge. And, like, yeah. he went, like, he went way over word count on, <laughs> on Coolidge in our instruction. He's a fascinating dude. Yeah. And, and he was one of the few who voluntarily quit. Yeah, he did yep. one administration, and then he was out. That was right. You were able to sneak in just in your deadline the reporting that came out um, after the Trump presidency about uh, President Trump throwing a plate of uh, fries or a hamburger against a wall and ketchup staining the wall. That was well reported. Um, I have to ask you about Trump. I have a couple questions. First, um, did he actually eat as much fast food that was reported widely in the media? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> in short, uh, he did. Uh, and But he used food in a very shrewd way. Um, and people are surprised when I say that. But think about it. When he was tweeting out pictures of his taco bowls or his pizza um, or he was hosting the Clemson football team mm-hmm. to a quote unquote burger banquet in the state dining room, uh, offending everybody on all sides of the political spectrum. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was very intentional. And it was a uh, it was a message a subverbal message to his base saying, you like to eat what I like to eat, therefore vote for me. Uh, it was much like Ronald Reagan eating mm-hmm. jelly beans, which was a seemingly simple candy, but actually was kind of more complicated than that. And it was, and it's a, it's a primal thing. I talked to some academics about this. Um, when you see somebody else wearing a similar shirt to you, you think, oh, that's a nice shirt, but it doesn't mean much. When you see somebody eating what you like to eat, it goes into our lizard brain, our prehistoric brain, and it basically tells us, oh, we're of the same tribe. Mm -hmm. Uh, This person is safe. Uh, I like this person. And it's a very powerful motivator. 
The other thing is that when the public sees what the president is eating, they emulate him. Yep. Um, so when the Obamas had their garden and they were eating healthy food and exercising, a lot of people got on that bandwagon yep. and started planting and eating and exercising, including the staff at the White House, uh, and posting the numbers of pounds they'd lost and so on. But then Trump comes in and he's eating burgers, and that kind of gave us license to slip back a little bit uh, and and eat things that are less healthy. I think about... Barack Obama's almonds, his almond count. Seven only. Seven only. And that really (laughs) resonated with so many people who uh, were, in variety of reasons, eating a lot of almonds. Like almonds. Hey, they're good. They're great. Almonds are great. And they're domestic product. And honestly, it makes sense. Um, Did you, through your reporting, come across anything about Donald Trump's diet, about his particularities, about eating that maybe would surprise us? Only in that it was more than we realized. Uh, he really more did. More food? More food huh. um, and more red meat than I think people. He hardly mm. ate any vegetables. He only ate iceberg lettuce when it was sort of shredded oh. on his taco. He was one of those guys. Yeah. Interesting. And he liked his, he would get these beautiful steaks, uh, uh, dry age steak, uh, you know, $50 mm-hmm. piece of meat. And he'd have the cook grill it so intensely that it it rocked on the plate, according to his valet. I mean, he would incinerate this thing, and then he'd put ketchup on top of it, which is sort of replicating all the, the, the juices that were cooked out of it, uh, and is also largely sugar. So I don't think people realize that that indicates something about his personality. Um, and it, it, it's something food can be quite revealing. Um, you know, when Richard Nixon ate a little dollop of cottage cheese every single day for lunch, that's odd, and it tells you about yeah. him. No comment on ketchup on steak, my gosh. Um, back to <laughs> the Obama administration. Uh, Michelle Obama's garden was symbolic in many ways. I think there was a little bit of, of controversy around the way her healthy eating initiative rolled out. Of course, anything the president does is controversies, controversial, so we don't need to get into that. But I want to get a little bit more into what that garden meant. Um, many called it revolutionary, but you would argue that it certainly wasn't. Well, it's interesting. It, it was it was considered radical uh, yeah. to rip up this beautifully pristine manicured lawn and put a vegetable garden at the White House. But actually, it's a throwback because the yep. early White Houses often had vegetable patches and certainly had uh, – uh, cows, not only in a barn, but some lived in the White House, so they had fresh milk there. Uh, I think the Tafts were the last one to have a cow mm. uh, or chickens, as I mentioned. Um, and uh, the garden actually was a brilliant piece of political theater, I think, uh, because uh, it was hard to assail, although it was assailed because people mistakenly thought it was quote-unquote organic. She never called it that. It was fresh vegetables, uh, which she fed to her family, but also uh, gave to soup kitchens and mm-hmm. and fed to guests. And uh, it got people outside. It got them gardening. It got them thinking about victory gardens from the First and Second World War. Um, that history is there. Um, and so uh, I think it was a very potent tool, and it, and it remains today. I think the controversy that I'm thinking of, and, and maybe it's not a controversy, is that it wasn't enough, that a garden is not enough to cure hunger or to create a healthier environment for, for children. And I think um, people sniping at the First Lady, which will happen forever, um, took advantage of that with, the, with this symbolic garden, which they, many argued wasn't really that much. 
Well, you know, yeah, but it's better than nothing. Green. And, and, yeah. And um, so I think it was actually very effective getting people out and about and exercising and learning about vegetables. I mean, Michelle herself yeah. had never gardened before. Exactly. And this was, you know, malnutrition or poor nutrition is a real problem in this country. And it just got people thinking. Yeah. And it's just wonderful to see like Alice Waters and Michelle Obama in a garden at the White House. It's cool. I love Michael Pollan's line. He suggested that uh, not only they have fruits, but also I'm sorry, not only have vegetables, vegetables, but also have fruits and then some animals. And he suggested a donkey and an elephant who would wander around and, and then we would use their manure uh, as uh, <laughs> compost. <laughs> uh, great line from Michael Pond. Love that. Let's let's move on to the rest of your career. I mean, we could we could honestly have two episodes to talk about presidents and talk about the rest of your career. Um, but first, your great aunt Julia Child. What was your relationship like with her? Well, I was related to Julia through her husband, Paul Child, who was the twin brother of my grandfather, Charlie Child. So I grew up with them in the family. I would see them often. Uh, They never had kids of their own, and so they would treat my sisters and my cousins and me like surrogate grandchildren. Uh, Thanksgivings were epic, but uh, often we would spend time with them in Maine or California, occasionally in France. And uh, she just got us all cooking. It was, mm. I never learned, uh, I never got cooking lessons per se from her, but we just, just by osmosis, we learned how to cook and clean and have fun together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so she was a very, um, powerful influence on my life. And one of the things I loved about her is her inquisitiveness. She would always go into the kitchen after a restaurant meal and mm. talk to every single person there, spending the most time with the dishwasher who she, she knew the least about. Yep. Uh, and just seeing that as a kid, uh, made a huge impression. Yeah. Did it, uh, give you, I mean, a sense of a journalism as a future? I mean, yeah. I feel like, you know, she is a journalist. I mean, was a journalist and, and certainly her work, um, in, in, in her journal, her writing was, was not just cookbook writing. It was cultural anthropology. In many absolutely. Ways. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think having that, uh, model in our family made writing as a career seem possible to me, even though it wasn't a conscious thing. I just, I'd always, I'd always liked to read. And so writing came naturally to me. And so, um, but seeing how she worked with people, uh, was yeah. just a wonderful life experience. Later in life, you and Julia collaborated on a book, which has now been adapted many times over. I think anytime you've seen Julia Child in popular culture, um, is based on, uh, your book, The French Chef in America, and, and lots of the scholarship you worked on with your, with your great aunt. Let me ask you, what was that conversation like initially with Julia when you're like, let's work on a book? Well, she had been talking about doing a memoir of what she thought of as the favorite years of her life, which was 1948 to 1954, when Mm -hmm. she and Paul lived in Paris. He was a diplomat, a cultural attache. She was an unknown diplomatic wife who had never been to Europe before, uh, fell in love with French cooking on her very first day, uh, November 3rd, 1948, uh, when they ate in Rouen and they had a sole meunier with a sputtering butter sauce. And, uh, you know, she was off on her adventure and uh, learned to cook and teach, um, collaborated with Simca Beck and Loisette Bertol on, on mastering the art of French cooking. Yep. So since 1969, she had been talking about doing this memoir um, and it never appeared. It never appeared. I grew up. I became a writer. Once in a while, I would say, hey, Julia, how's that memoir going? Mm. Oh, it's coming along, dearie. And it <laughs> you, you got appeared. it. You yeah. nailed it. There <laughs> yeah. you go. And uh, finally, she was uh, 91, and wow. I made my annual visit to her in Santa Barbara, where she had retired to. And I said, well, how's that book coming? And she said, well, it's not so good, dearie. And mm. I said, well, I'm here to help. And she said, okay, let's do it. And so wow. uh, that was I, it. 
That was it. Were you having we were off a, to the uh, races and a shot enough to pop over a class of something cool? Um, actually, I was so unprepared because she'd always said no before because yeah. she wanted to do it herself, but she didn't like to talk about herself. And that's why it never got written. So it took someone like me who knew her well, who could extract the stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we had these wonderful letters that she and Paul wrote to my grandparents every week uh, from Paris and Marseille back to Pennsylvania. And they had kept the letters and it was, so for a writer, it was like, like discovering a cache of gold. I mean, oh it was gosh. just a, kind of glowing to me. And uh, so we had a great time doing that. And unfortunately, she died halfway through it, yeah. right before her 92nd birthday. And so I had to finish the book without her. And I had the great fortune of working with Judith Jones, her, her lifelong editor, who became my editor. Uh, and it's a legend. And yeah. uh, between us, we were kind of able to do this uh, ventriloquy where we could use Julia's, you know, idiosyncratic syntax, uh, you know, who she would say, she'd never say, I put a bowl on the table. She'd say, I plopped that bowl on the table, you know? (laughs) And so getting that flavor of Julia into the words uh, took some work, Um, but it was a really fun project. And then we didn't know how it would do because it passed away. That's really interesting. You didn't have a sense that this uh, figure in American pop culture wouldn't become what it is today. No idea. I mean, I sort of hoped because I grew up hearing these stories around the dinner table, but who knew, you know, she was, she was passed. And so what year is this? Uh, the book came out in 2006. Yep. Uh, and then in 2009, the skies parted and Nora Ephron and Meryl Streep and Stanley Tucci yep. descended from the heavens and made <laughs> Julie and Julia, which was based on the memoir, yep. My Life in France. Um, and then, you know, that, you know, that, just was, did lots wonders. Lots of meat, lots since yeah, then. That, that put it, the book to number one on the Times list and, right. you know, led to many other things. Well, it seems uh, 2006 is, is in a different uh, era. It's a little uh, early for food culture. I think we had the Celebrity Chefs of Food Network, but we certainly didn't uh, think about cookbooks as like cultural documents as much. I think that we, um, as a generation, discovered them late in the 2000s and, of course, in the, in the 2010s more. So that had something to do with it, maybe? Could be, although I, I would argue that the, the seeds of that were planted back in the 60s uh, by people like Julia and James Beard. Um, and Sure, of course. You can't. You can't. Uh, all of the writers that Judith Jones worked with. Yeah. Uh, so I think that that stuff was there, but it was nascent. And as you said, the Food Network was just beginning. Yeah, and, exactly. And, you know, Julia put people like Emeril Lagasse on television mm-hmm. or Lydia Bastianich. Uh, and these people became huge stars, but... It was just the beginning of that food media, which has now become this, yeah. you know, 24-7, 365 juggernaut. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's definitely a good point there. I agree that we have to obviously look back at the history of cookbooks, but it's more like the pop culture and like the resonating of cookbooks, like the the, the, the world of um, Alison Roman didn't ha- wasn't happening in 2006. Although, yeah, but I would argue that young people now are um, – Going back and rediscovering some yes. of those early books, you know, Alice Waters' earliest books. Um, I love that. I Richard agree. Olney, who was an expat American living in Provence, who yep. was a wonderful cook, kind of an irascible man, but he was <laughs> a, a wonderful cook. And, you know, these things are – they're there, but they they are just slowly being rediscovered mm-hmm. now. And it's, it's kind of anthropological. Yeah. Judith Jones, legend in the game, especially here at Penguin Random House. Um, lots of – anecdotes in the, on our show um, about working with Judith, but what's yours? What was it like working with her? Well, she's the best editor I've ever worked with. Uh, just remarkable. Amazing. Very light touch. When we were working on My Life in France, Julia's memoir, she hardly changed anything, but she made these little subtle changes that just made the thing sing. And uh, it was such a great collaboration. Um, and uh, she really knew 
American food history. And so yeah. when I had a question, I could turn to her and she would know the answer or who to turn to. And so uh, just in terms of her her deft approach and her level-headedness um, and judgment, uh, she was just extraordinary. Mm-hmm. I was, was, so, she hard, was she so hard, lucky. though, at times? She could be tough. Yeah. yeah she was this s- slight, small woman. Yeah who people, you know, uh, a little bit like Joan Didion, people mistook her for being uh, fragile. Yeah. They, neither of them were. They good, were Good hot. comparison to Didion. And so was Julia. Julia was big and tough, and yep. Judith was small and yep. tough, and that's one reason they got along. Judith wrote a book about her dog, a cookbook for her dog. Which exactly. Is, we have a copy in my office upstairs. <laughs> yep, and she also wrote a cookbook about cooking for one. Uh, her husband, Evan, who was a wonderful food writer, died, uh, and she was alone, and so she learned to cook for one, and, and it's quite a good Book. Yeah. She also wrote two books with L.L. Bean, which we are working on a story right now. It is in edits and it'll be published maybe when this interview runs and I'll link to it. If not, it's coming. It's it's that uh, the writer is on it. Oh, excellent. Because I've heard about those things. I've never seen them. Yeah. Our writer got a, got his hands on a couple of those. More more questions about your career. Um, we can thank you for the soup Nazi on, on Seinfeld. You wrote a piece in The New Yorker called Slave and it, it, it in, you profiled a chef who um, – I would say has a very close comparison to that character on Seinfeld. How did you find this individual? Who is this individual? Let's get a little into <laughs> I that. I love this story. His name is Al Yagane. Uh, he ran a little storefront, like little storefront on West 55th Street here in Manhattan. Yeah, it's right around the corner. It's right around it's the literally corner. literally right behind our yeah. office. Yeah. And a friend of mine knew that I was a foodie and told me about it. So I stopped by one night um, and I just started chatting with him. And he was this kind of brilliant crazy genius. And his soup selection was kind of mind blowing. So I tried a couple and I was like, and I didn't go over there thinking I was going to write about him. I just went for the soup. And I was (laughs) so enamored of the soup. I was like, I got to write about this. So I came back for lunch a couple of times and the scene there was just hilarious because there's this long line of people and he was very brusque. He Mm -hmm. was the soup Nazi. He was saying, you know, if somebody couldn't make her, her mind about what she wanted to eat, it's like, okay, move along, you know, and like, and you know, you, the, just the chatter in line about what people wanted to eat. And so I I, I, I did a, a talk of the town yeah. piece for The New Yorker. Pure talk of the town. And uh, I got a huge response to this thing. And, um, you know, I got a Japanese magazine, wrote about me writing about him. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, people all over the place were reproducing it. And then ultimately, um, a writer for Seinfeld picked it up and um, and did a, you know, a, an enhanced version of my piece. Sadly, I never got paid for that because uh, yeah. I was at the beginning of my career. I didn't know what my rights were. But, uh, you know, it still lingers in the culture today. People yeah. still talk about the soup Nazi. Oh, it's, and, and he's still fabulous. And <laughs> it's still fabulous. In New York, The it's on, on reruns like eight or nine hours a day. So exactly. You're going to get a few Soup Nazi episodes a week. Uh, what happened to the chef? Do you know anything about his his his, um, his current situation, his current status? I don't. I should check back with him. Yeah. I know that he would take uh, half the year off and he would go traveling and he would collect recipes all around the world. And, you know, he made a really good living out of this tiny storefront. And he's a real health nut, and mm-hmm. so he was really interested in the the beneficial aspects of, of, of certain herbs and spices, and um, he got really into it. So he deserved his success. It's crazy. It's right next to Yakitori Toto. If you if you know that location in New York, it's this little stand. I've literally never had a soup from there, and I, my office, I've worked here for several years. Is it good still? Oh, it's great. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Get the over there. <laughs> I got to get me over there. Yeah. Okay, a few more questions. I want to know, you're a journalist. You're always on the hunt for stories, and I have to ask, uh, is there somebody 
in food who's under the age of 30 or so that you'd like to write about, like the profile that interests you enough to, to kind of follow them and, and, and do something there? Interesting question because actually uh, at the moment I'm c- contemplating a story. My brother-in-law is a beer brewer in Connecticut. Mm. He runs a company called Cottrell Beer and um, I've been sort of tuned into the young – uh, beer brewing, winemaking, uh, alcohol distilling crew. There's a real energy there now. Yeah. I mean, I live in Brooklyn, New York, which is sort of one of the epicenters of it, but it's nationwide. And there's this new um, influx of energy and money and yep. talent. Uh, people are taking it in different directions. I have another friend who is um, making premixed cocktails, uh, mm-hmm. uh, which has become a huge segment now. Um, it just seems that that's a really interesting area. Um, I don't have any specific names that I want to mention yet because I'm sort of at the beginning of this. Sure. I'm not sure what I'm going to do with this, but it's I find that area really interesting. I, I think it's cool if you if you took your background and started looking at that world. I mean, there's plenty. I, I have to point you to Punch. They do incredible work when in covering the the rising talent in, in brewing and, and et cetera. But um, also NA is blowing up too, mm-hmm. the NA yeah, movement. Exactly. Um, and, and for me, uh, Paul Child was a great mixologist back before that was even a word. Wow. And he would make up these cocktails, uh, some of which Julia reprinted in, in her cookbooks, um, and which if you go to a, uh, a Julia event, you'll often have a, a Paul Child cocktail <laughs> where he takes a, you know, marmalade and rum and comes up with some crazy thing. And he always used poetic names for them. And so that's kind of in the back of my mind, too. And I want to do something with this area. Yeah. Let me ask you, Alex, if you could go back to any era and dine then, this could be Five years ago, it could be 150 years ago, it could be 5,000 years ago, with a notebook for a weekend, what would it be? I would have to go back to that dinner table bargain that Jefferson held at his place on Maiden Lane with Hamilton and Madison because there was so much happening in that room that night. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall or a guest. Uh, the 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 wrap, the room where it happened in Hamilton mm-hmm. is, is wrapped by Aaron Burr, who was not invited and was deeply jealous about that. Talk about FOMO. Yeah, Whoa. right, exactly. And, um, and you know, not only were the participants interesting and the issues um, uh, fascinating and still relevant today, by the way, uh, taxation and the role of the federal government and even Washington as a capital, <laughs> um, but um, the cooking was a extremely high level uh, done by James Hemings and was really sort of the beginning of Amer- modern American cuisine. So that dinner I would have loved to have been at. Alex, we asked all guests in the Taste podcast if you could write a cookbook or food culture book without the burden of time, meaning you have no deadline, or the burden of budget, meaning you have all the money in the world to create this book, what would that be? I would expand this current book, Dinner with the President. Oh, I hope you do. Uh, I really do. I would make a 12-volume set because <laughs> <laughs> it's so darn interesting, this subject, you know, the politics of food and the food of politics. And there's so many aspects of it that I uh, had to ignore or cut. Uh, and I would like to return to them. I'd like to do more recipes. I'd like to uh, expand on indigenous and uh, slave cookery. I'd like to go abroad and uh, spend some time where people like Jefferson or, or Obama uh, hung their hat for a while mm-hmm. uh, and get into this notion of 
gastro diplomacy, which is now actually having a little renaissance, which is uh, this notion of uh, sending American chefs abroad to act as kind of soft mm. diplomats, cooking American regional cuisine and expanding uh, our global footprint that way. And, uh, you know, the, 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 we're at a very interesting moment in global history right now, and there's a lot happening around food and politics. And I just think I would love to keep going on this. Oh, my gosh. How about Rick, Ken, the Burns boys? Yeah. I mean, you talk to them. Like, I feel let's, like let's go. This, this, why would you not stop and watch a show or a series about this? I'll mention it to them. <laughs> I hope. <laughs> no, I think it's it's a rich text, and I think you've done such an amazing job of bringing it all together. Your knowledge is is unparalleled, and I really appreciate your time. Thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. My pleasure. Thank you so much, and uh, bon appetit. Eliza, it's great to see you. Matt, how are you doing? I mean, how are you doing? I'm good. I have a little sun on my nose right now. I know you do. I have a little sun too on my nose, but let's talk about our trips because I wanted to go over our kind of recent few, uh, say a month. It's been our, we've had travel in our lives. Yeah, we we went to be warm somewhere else for a little bit. We did. We we played that one well. But you first. You went to Miami for the first time. Yeah, I went to Florida for the first Wait, time. Let it back up. Florida for the first time. Yeah. It was incredible. I felt like I Wait. had like I had so many questions at every step of the way. You know, there's so much to take in. It was all, you know, I'm from California. Yeah. So some of it felt very familiar. And then at a certain point everything would just be completely different. Now, was there something that you knew going in that kind of was a self-fulfilling prophecy about the state of Florida or hashtag Florida man or all the loaded things we talk about Florida? I guess I, I went in knowing that I wanted to eat a lot of tropical fruit that yeah. um, I know grows in Florida or is available there that I couldn't really find in other places. And I did fulfill that prophecy for myself, which was kind of amazing. So let's get into your tropical fruit journey. But first, best meal you had, singular single best meal you had in Miami. I mean, it was one thing, probably. Well, I liked a lot of things, but there was one day that I was like, you know, I had a late night. I was really hungry, and I went to this place called Sanguich that does, like, Cubanos and other Cuban sandwiches. And I had a media noche, which is a Cubano, but it's on sweet egg bread, almost like Mm. challah instead of that kind of crispier Cuban bread. And it was just, like, everything I needed. I ate it in the parking lot. Yeah. I, I cried a little bit. It yeah. was just, like, a soul-fulfilling <laughs> sandwich. Is so there a condiment the on there? One. Um, you know, it's, like, a normal Cubano in that it has sweet pickles yeah. and mustard and Swiss cheese yeah. and that really good kind of, like, thin ham. Um, I don't—it didn't come with a dipping sauce. It didn't It didn't need anything. So it the Miami great. version has thin ham because sometimes Cubanos in, like, New York or wherever is, like, with the roasted pork and it's yeah. thick. No, not, like, um, pernil or lechon, but, like, yeah. a really thin, almost like a little rose petal of mm. thin ham. Damn. What time was this? Was it in the threes? Was it in the twos? Uh, this was a... I think we had to wait for a while. So by the time I ate it, it was around 3 p.m. And it was my first meal of the yeah, day. And I yeah. had had two Cuban coffees at that point. So I was really, you know, needing something. You're ready. But I think even if I had been like totally fed and watered, it still would have been a phenomenal sandwich. <laughs> fed and watered a little bit. What about uh, just like visiting Miami? You know, we you talked about Cuban food, which is obviously a big part of it. Was there a cuisine or was there something about it, the, the food scene that surprised you? Maybe um, who's who's making food down there? 
I mean, I knew that there was some of that like Peruvian yeah. UK style, but I didn't know quite how substantial that was. Yeah. And that was another great meal is that I went to, there's a restaurant called um, Ceviche 105 that mm. I have a couple locations in Miami. I went like, that was my yeah. first meals at in South Beach, went there for dinner, had a really good um, tiradito, which is kind of like ceviche or sashimi and that it's thin raw fish. Um, oh. This was hamachi. And this is kind of maybe a Miami move. It had some truffle oil, oil on yeah. it, which I I think it's like a controversial flavor, but it honestly was so good. That was one of my favorite things that I had. I mean, truffle oil is kind of delicious, low-key. Yeah, if, if it, you know, it was the right amount. Yeah. It didn't overpower Tastes anything. Good. It felt like I was entering my Miami era. It was like <laughs> a, a little luxury, you know? You pick up any pieces, any clothing? Um, I did not. Oh, I did. I got merch from the fruit stand that I went to in the Everglades, which is called Robert is Here. Okay. So let's go into your fruit journey because I think that's a cool thing. You you picked up some new tropical fruits in your in your kind of catalog. Yeah, I tried so many. Um, well, I had fresh mame, which I'd had before um, in Oaxaca. I'd never had it fresh in the what United States. What is that? I am unfamiliar. Mame zapote is like very hard on the outside and then very orange inside. It's almost like an avocado texture. It's incredibly creamy. You can kind of scoop it and it, you know, will mold around papaya the Papaya-like? Yeah. Um, even like creamier than papaya. Yeah. Really like a Haas avocado, but the flavor mm-hmm. is like caramel. Um, so when I've had it in Mexico before, I've had it as ice cream or milkshake. That's a really common preparation. And I did get a milkshake, a mame milkshake at the fruit stand as well. Um, but just the fresh mame, I think is is really good. But the best thing that I had, I'd never had before. Have you had um, guanabana before? Soursop? Yes, I've had that before. Yes, I've had that in Vietnam, I think. It's amazing. Yeah, I yeah. had never had it before. It is like a jackfruit-like texture for anyone who hasn't had it. Yeah. Kind of shreddy around these seeds and then the flavors, almost like pineapple yeah. mixed with peach. Um, Wait, and- that's crazy. Pineapple and peach together. Yeah, Because pineapple and, and kind of a rounder fruit is cool. It was it was that. so good. They had it sliced in the fridge. It was very expensive, and it, it said. Oh, best Robert's fruit. not giving the shit away. Uh, no, I mean Robert knows what he's doing. I would pay so much money for this fruit. After yeah. I, at first, I was kind of like, "This is a lot of money for half a fruit." Um, and and it said best fruit in the world, which to me is a crazy claim for a fruit stand to be making because they're selling all of these incredible fruits. But then I I tried it and I got it. You got the claim. Now, what's the temperature that they're serving at? Because I feel for me, fruit needs to be served at a particular temperature. It, it really, too cold or too hot, it'll ruin the whole experience. Mm, yeah, this was, you know, you could buy a whole one and slice it. Yeah. They slice it for you, which is kind of nice. cool. But uh, we just got half of one. Even that half was like $12 for half a fruit, which sound, which is like a large, it's, you know, size of two fists. And that was in the fridge, but then it was pretty hot out. So by the time we were eating it, it was kind of like room temp, you know. Yo, and that's great. I feel like room temp works sometimes because I think the flavors actually are more pronounced when it's room temp. Yeah, it was. Um, or like off the vine. It's like the natural temp. We call it room temp. It's like vine temp. Vine temp. Tree temp. Tree temp. Yeah. Yeah, I don't even, I think they probably grow on trees, but um yeah, that was great. And then I brought back a chermoya with me. Um, Smuggled. That is still not ripe, but it is yeah. sitting on my countertop. And every day I just hopefully <laughs> give it a little squeeze and see how you're it's feeling. You're feeling it. You're tapping on it. Yeah, I've never I've never had a chermoya also, but my yeah. sister um, came back from South America with a real obsession for them. And yeah. they grow them. I've seen them at the L.A. Farmer's Market before. So oh. I, I'm eagerly awaiting. Apparently it tastes like raspberry yogurt. Like Definitely not in my top 10 of yogurt flavors, but I know what you're saying. Raspberry yogurt as a fruit. The creaminess, I think, that that, that suggests is interesting. You no, know, I, I, I get it. Um, I wasn't trying to shade 
the 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 fruit. I'm just saying that's not my. <laughs> I don't think of raspberry yogurt as a reference point, but now I see what you're saying. Yeah, it's like the creamy texture of fruit. Yeah, really dope. That was really great. Another sweet thing that I had that I really liked was I got some chocolate chip cookies from a pop up bakery in Miami called Liger's Cookies that started during the pandemic. Um, that was just a really good crispy on the outside, gooey on the inside. Yeah. Just a platonic ideal of a chocolate chip cookie. And always nice to find a pastry on the run. Yeah, it was so great. And I and then I found one in my bag and ate it on the plane. And it was <laughs> um it still was that mixture of textures. You know, I don't really like a crisp cookie all the way through. We've definitely established this on taste. It's definitely a gooey, chewy kind of kind of hive here. Yes. So totally with you here. Yeah, no, it was it was perfect. It was um, exactly how I wanted to leave Florida with tropical fruit in my suitcase and uh, cookies. It was great. I love this recap. I feel like I've never been to Miami myself. Been all over Florida. You haven't? No, I've I, I've been to everywhere else. I, I grew up in the Midwest, so I'm like definitely west coast of Florida. So like St. Pete, mm-hmm. you know, all those like you know Sarasota, all that stuff, and then of course did the Disney one time. Do you yeah. do you want do you have any um, interest in going to Disney? No, I have negative interest in going <laughs> to Disney. I think that would be like my worst case scenario. Um, but I did do an airboat tour in the Everglades. So and cool! Saw all of these wild alligators. Held a baby alligator. Oh my god, it's so cute! It was so cute. That, I really was like, maybe this would be my new pet. Are those airboats like scary? They seem kind of like crazy, like the way that they drive them and stuff. They're really fun. You know, you can just uh, kind of Tokyo drift around the whole Everglades yeah. area, and we were. Um, there's two sides of the Everglades. There's the National Park side, and then there's an Indian reservation. And we were on that side. We did a like indigenous-owned airboat tour company, yep. and ended up getting basically a private airboat tour because no one else showed up for the time slot. And I just kind of convinced them to take us out. So, How fun! Yeah, it was really it was really fun. And I was like, I don't know what I was expecting, but being that close to an alligator really gets your adrenaline. Yeah. Up for sure. Oh. Wow. Mm, I'm gonna go. Yeah, you, you should go. And I would say like just the funny thing about. The tropical fruit alligator connection is that um, guanabana looks a lot like alligator <laughs> really? from the outside. Yeah, it's scaly and green. And um, the like back to back videos of seeing a baby alligator and then a video of somebody slicing that fruit was really traumatizing because yeah. it looked like we were eating alligator, but it was just fruit. Just the fruit. Oh my God. Let the record be clear. Yeah, only fruit, no gators. Yeah. I've, had, I've eaten alligator, it's it it fine. Yeah, I, I've Did had it some? as like a sausage before sausage, in Louisiana, yeah. you know, at a mm, festival of some kind. Uh, but now that I've held a baby alligator, no. I feel a little, you know. They're 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 really cute in baby form. They're like little lizards. Yeah, a lot of things are cute in baby it's form. It's true, actually, yeah. Yeah. I wanna hear about I wanna hear about your trip. How was Israel? Israel was great. So I was there for two weeks, uh, with my my mom and my father in law, my Abba and Tamar. So the four of us, we had this kind of great like, let's go to Abba's, like, army base. Let's go to the monument. Um, you know, he, he served in the 1973 war, so, like, let's go to that monument. Um, so, like, the back half of it was not, like, food-focused, so to speak. Obviously, when you travel, you get to, um, you eat, obviously, three times a day, but it was less it, less that. So I'm going to focus in, in recapping it for you on Tel Aviv. Mm-hmm. Can I tell you about Tel Aviv? Have you been to Tel Aviv? I've been once uh, over a decade ago. Oh, so okay. I'd love to hear about um, your take on what's happening in the city right now. Like, truly the best city. Truly. I mean, it really is a special place. Um, it's a merging of culture. It's It's extremely modern. 
everyone is hot as hell. It's <laughs> it's um, one third. Our, our our we went on a, a great tour uh, with our uh, with our new friend, and he showed us some spots, and he said one third of Tel Aviv residents identify as queer, and it's like a real mecca for. Uh, for LGBTQ like life, mm-hmm. and it's very accepting. So, and Pride there is like massive party. Yeah, I've seen photos of yeah. that before. That's that's cool. I'm curious what Real the cool. food scene is like. Does it feel like um, there's like a specific style of food happening there, or is it pretty varied? Good question. Um, I tried everything from Mizrahi Arab food to uh, Ashkenazi, more European centric. I had gelato or glita. Um, I had gazuz uh, or gazos. I, my Hebrew is not good, obviously, but I'm also very bad at just pronunciating, pronouncing, pronouncing. Pronouncing. Can't even say the word pronouncing. Pronouncing Hebrew um, in a Romanized way and an English way. So, apologies to all Hebrew speakers out there. <laughs> I have a lot of thoughts on um, the what's happening there. I think like modern restaurant culture is is alive there. Service is better than ever. This is my third trip there in maybe six years. Mm. And I think it's certainly service was not always, you know, what you would expect in New York, but it's gotten really great. And I think that's important. Like when you're going to a restaurant to have somebody uh, really present the food um, on the service side, it's important. Yeah, for sure. My, my friend was just saying that... Um, She's Israeli and that her family dream is to start a seltzer brand because everyone drinks seltzer in Israel, but there isn't a, a locally made seltzer. It's all being imported. Did you see a lot of seltzer? Well, that's Gazuz is seltzer. Yeah, so exactly. And and there isn't like a Lacroix local. So I think your friend is totally on point. I think that there's uh, Benny, who uh, is the Gazuz guy's Benny Briga. He's written books uh, about it. He has a spot at uh, Levinsky Market um, and he does like botanicals and he's doing like they're kind of like NACOP. Cocktails. They're mm-hmm. beautiful and mostly water. But then Benny showed us his lab and he's got all these amazing tinctures and fermentation projects going on in there. Yeah, I didn't get like a local. There's no like Topo Chico of Tel Aviv that mm-hmm. I could find. So that's dope. Um, a couple restaurants come to mind. I think one that I always go to is Basta. I think I've been there every time since I've visited, which is right by the Shuk in Tel Aviv. And it's like I think it's like the coolest, most modern restaurant. And modern meaning it feels like it could be stuck in Paris or New York, or or it doesn't. It feels like it's taking the inspiration from outside of uh, Tel Aviv, which you know is not necessarily a good thing. But I think what they do is they're they're just creative and they're doing raw fish and they're doing braised meats. And I think I just love the way uh, they operate. So Basta is one cool. that I really love. Um, I went to Art Glida, uh, A-R-T-E, uh, like three times. I think it's like the best gelato that you're ever going to find. The dairy in Israel is out of control. Yeah. Do you have a go-to gelato flavor? I went like two fla- two styles of chocolate, but for me, it's like dark chocolate, like almost on bitter is like my go-to. Mm-hmm. I also had raspberry, not raspberry, thinking about raspberries. I had strawberries. Strawberries is like in my top three yogurt flavors, by the way. Mm. So raspberry, whatever, like ir- irks me a bit for re- yogurts. I think that blue raspberry has given raspberry a bad <laughs> reputation because it sounds artificial. But yeah, yeah, yeah. A good raspberry, I think, is worth having. I agree. I, I think you're right. Um, so art is is a place I really liked for gelato or glida. Um, 
a few other places that I want to share. I have like a list here. Shout them out. Because I think Tel Aviv, you could go to, we, we and we didn't go to, to Jaffa, which is the southern mm-hmm. port of Tel Aviv. We didn't even go there. And there's like stuff happening there. We didn't even go to the far northern port either. So we only had like three or four days. We were up in like Haifa and in the Golan and went to Jerusalem for a day and have a restaurant there. And then we went to Beersheba. So we were all over the country. Um, Ibn Ezra, probably my favorite meal of the trip. And my Abba's favorite meal, my father-in-law's favorite meal too, which he's a tough customer. Uniting the family. He's like a kibbutznik. He he has like very different tastes than than me. Mm-hmm. He's like very simple food. He like ate like um, the uh, schnitzel. Everywhere we went, he wanted schnitz. I love schnitzel, so I, I respect that. Was this more of like, uh, what kind of food was at this, this, Even this unifying was, restaurant? It's a kosher restaurant. It's in Florentine. It's opened by the son of this famous restaurant. The, the chef is uh, the owner of Azura in Jerusalem, which is a market restaurant. So this is their Tel Aviv kosher grill. So they did like a like a simple braised, uh, braised short rib mm. that was seasoned um, with like pomegranate. And it was just perfect. The hummus was adorned, and we had hummus in many places, including Ben Sira in, uh, in Jerusalem, which is super dope. But the hummus there was, um, it also had a meat, um, kind of like a gravy on it that I loved. There was a braised chicken, which is something that, like a very Ashkenazi, like something you would get at Passover. Yeah. And like I didn't see a lot of that in, in Israel in general, this like sweet, like date syrup, maybe apricot braised chicken, but really um, outstanding. They had chicken patties, which were cool. I thought that like doing a chicken patty or like a grilled chicken kebab with a lot of cumin mm. and fenugreek in there. Uh, I went with Dina Sussman, a good friend. She She took us there. Uh, her book is coming out, Shabbat. It's going to be dope. So. Ooh, I love sababa. It's something I cook from a lot. You cook just, from sababa? Yeah, yeah. Dinner party vibes. You totally. Know. Well, Shabbat, I have a PDF, and we'll have her on the show soon, uh, is just celebration of, of Shabbat food, but also just like the the kind of lifestyle. But um, you know what? I, I also had a sandwich that I kind of am like, it's changed the way I think about uh, sandwiching. Is it a verb? I'll use that as a verb. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle. Back to schnitzel, but with challah. Wow. It's really interesting. Like, I never really thought about that. How does that even—I feel like schnitzel is—you have to really bite into that, and the and challah is squishy. Is it— Very thin schnitzel. Okay. This isn't the German style or the even the American Southern style. It's a very thin pound. It's, like, probably a quarter inch. Wow. And was it the bread toasted or no? No, it was like an like a just a totally dry like a, a normal roll. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could put like a mustard or a mayonnaise on it. I, I, I preferred a mayonnaise, but I loved it. It was like a really fresh challah. I, I think that was like one of my awakenings there. That sounds delicious. That sounds like comfort food, and also similar to the medio noche that I had, in that it's a sweet egg sweet bread, bread that's being used with this meat. I think that um, you know I always want all my food to hit on. All the different flavors at once and having that kind of savory sweet combo is really fun. I have to call it a sif. Have you heard about the Jewish Food Society is involved with this? It's called a sif and it's the Culinary Institute of Israel. Mm -hmm. Um, And they're doing an exhibit there that I was able to attend um, that was dedicated to workers, restaurants and worker food in Israel. 
And it's really really a, a nice brief uh, exhibit. And it kind of goes through the Mashav Kibbutz era of dining, but it also gets into like migrant work in Israel and how that's important to the economy. And they've sent photographers to cover uh, the different styles of dining. Um, and that institute or an organization is amazing. And I'm going to have the founder, Nama Shefi, on uh, the show at some point to talk about it. That sounds really cool. I'm curious, like, are there any um, co-op models for restaurants happening in Israel right now? I feel like that whole kibbutz moshav mentality could kind of translate in that way. In a modern sense, not that I know of, I know the moshav, we were on several kibbutz when we were visiting family, and, like, that's still, kibbutz lifestyle is still real in yeah. northern Israel where we were. Uh, we went to a couple, and I'll just say visiting kibbutz is something that I think everyone should should do, and I think that it's it's a kind of lifestyle that harkens back to a different era. It's it's interesting. For sure. If there was one like menu item that you could have available at a restaurant here in New York and eat it whenever you want that you had in Israel, do you do you have one in mind? Um so many. Um I would say it's simple, but the hummushaya there, the hummus, is hard to describe the creaminess of it and it's everywhere so it's like good hummus everywhere and hummus as a meal uh combined with a pita that is thick like we're talking like thick like um you know four or five inches thick in some cases like very thick uh bread uh a thick crust i think is what i call it mm-hmm. um it's just different i mean it, it hits different right i mean it really is a special style of dining uh, and having like the pita and hummus together. And when you reflect on what hummus and pita is like here, it's extremely sad. Yeah. You know, I had I had really good hummus in uh, Miami, actually, at this restaurant called Mandolin that is a Turkish, yeah? Syrian. I know that name. Greek. I definitely know that name. Yeah. You know, I, I it's beautiful outdoor dining. I had to Google like I just Googled TMZ Miami Mandolin because I, I feel like a lot of celebrities probably that's eat there. That's really what you Google. That's hilarious. Yeah, and like Beyonce and Jay-Z were there. You yeah, know? yeah, So that vibe. That's probably why I know it. Um, but it made me think about how excited I am to be cooking now that the weather is getting nicer again and using dip as a vehicle for the meal because I had Definitely. really good um, hummus with uh, merguez sausage on yeah. top and pita and a veggie on the side. It was all I needed. And I think that um, just thinking about eating differently as the weather is getting warmer. I'm trying to do more dip as a meal. Dip as a meal is great. Dip as a meal. Interesting. We should do that story. Dip as a meal? Yeah. Yeah. I think let's, let's, let's get that story. I'm down. Hey, Liza, thanks for sharing Miami. I'm going to have to make it there. <laughs> Anytime. The Taste Podcast is hosted by Eliza Abarbanel and me, Matt Rodbar. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things that are happening.